Lord, we praise you this morning, and I pray that it would be true of all of us, that your praise would always be on our lips. May you be exalted. May your name be exalted. And we long for the day when you come again and you bring a new heaven and a new earth. And all will be made right. And we will praise you nonstop all the days of our lives. And so, Lord, speak through me and through all of us this morning. Apply the word of God, Holy Spirit, to our hearts and minds. Build your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as we continue our series and what the Bible says about, uh, we talked about society, the very first society, that pre-flood society that the only information that we have about it is what, writ- is, what is written in the um, fourth chapter of Genesis. Um, and last week, and real quickly, we we're going to look at, at just 15 characteristics in that, that sermon, and the first one was this, is that Adam and Eve and all of their offspring were not the primitive Neanderthals that we have been conditioned to believe. We talked about how we've, it is just universally accepted, it is sad, but it is true, the teachings of Charles Darwin and evolution, okay? That, it, you know, it, Millions of thousands to millions of years for man to evolve from a caveman to where he is today, and you know, we say no. <laughs> man was created mature, a man by God, and they made great advancements in society in the first 1656 years. Adam and even all their offspring were healthier and physically stronger than we ever been. This is why they, they were to live so long. We'll get into more of the details of why and how later. Because of their superior physical strength and uncompromised immune system, they had great stamina, and this allowed them to have many children. Okay, we keep reading about this, all of the children that that they had. In that early generation, all marriages at first were brother and sister marriages. Again, there was no degeneration of the bloodlines and the genetics and so on, and so that was very, it was a pristine, pure human. Okay? Number five, with such long lifespans, one can imagine that the earth was very populated. Do you remember what they estimated? And they were conservative estimates of the population that was blotted out except for eight people by the flood. Do you remember that number? Seven to ten billion billion people. A couple of you have commissioned to me, I know it was Rodney and Lloyd, that they have found in in rock and sediment that they believe goes back to this pre-flood society what looks like a spark plug. You ever heard that before, anybody? That's how advanced they probably were, we think. Yeah, so again, get away from the Neanderthal man, okay? They were far more intelligent than, than we give them credit for. Six, they were, they were highly skilled. Of course, if you do something for, if you, you work, what, 40, 50 years, that's your career? Imagine doing that for 600 years. You kind of know what you're doing, right? Yeah, hopefully. 
We don't know what language they spoke. Do you know it was one language even after the flood? Uh, they lived in a far more favorable environment than the post-flood civilization. We believe, and again, we'll get into this later when we talk about the, the reshaping of the earth at the flood. Um, number nine, because of the flood, very few artifacts of the pre-flood era have been found by archaeologists. What did God say he was going to do to that evil generation that was so corrupt? Blot them out. Wipe them off the face of very little evidence have uh, been found by archaeologists. Genesis 4 tells the story of be the beginning of two cultures, the secular and the sacred. We looked this morning at the secular culture, which goes through who? Cain. And the righteous culture goes through Seth. Talk about common grace. The doctrine of common grace pertains to the sovereign grace of God that is always bestowed on all people in all parts of the earth at all times. And we'll get into that a little bit more today. Uh, Adam and Eve and their offspring were incredibly creative. Again, if you worked at something for so long, um, and they're image bearers of God, and God we know in and of himself is very creative. Okay? Say great creativity. Perhaps this goes without saying, but the biblical historical record speaks nothing of evolution. Okay? God created, creation is this, God created man and he was mature. All the trees and the plants, the vegetables were mature and they had seedlings and so on. All right? They didn't evolve over, you know, by chance over millions or billions of years. Adam and Eve and their offspring recognized the formality and legality of marriage and the institution of the family. We see them marrying in all this record and in the genealogies and so on. And, and, and last but not least, and I think this took most of us back, is that Adam saw most of it, all the corruption that was taking place. He lived up to almost the birth of Noah, which there was obviously corruption before that. And both Adam and Eve, and we don't know how long Eve lived, but they would have seen that. And Adam and Eve were believers. Can you imagine seeing all of that on a level that I don't think it's ever been that corrupt? Because even now in society, who do we have restraining evil? The Holy Spirit, okay? So, those were the 15 points that we looked at about the first society. Now let's talk about the secular society. Get your Bibles out, turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. I would say open the middle of your Bible and go left. <laughs> Just open up the very first page of the Bible, and there you go. Genesis chapter 1 and go to chapter 4. We all there? Very good. Starting verse 11. This is the uh, curse to Cain for killing his brother Abel. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. <clears throat> you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Jump to verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled, and you probably want to underline that word in your Bible, settled, in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And just so you know, that's not the Enoch that was taken up 
into heaven with God, lived 300 years, was taken up. No, it's a different Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now again, in case you need reminding, when Cain worshipped God, the true God, his own way, that is what? Unacceptable worship of God. And so accordingly, God rejected Cain's offering. Now when Abel worshipped the true God, God's way, that is what? Acceptable worship. Exactly. And God accepted Abel's offering. And so in a fit of premeditated, jealous anger, what does Cain do? Kills his righteous Abel. Exactly. His brother. And then after being confronted by God about this murder, and then lying about Abel's death, the Lord cursed Cain. And this is what we read in verse 12. The ground would no longer produce for him. And he would be forced to be a vagrant and a wanderer, having no place to settle down and basically call home. So after leaving the presence of the Lord, what does Cain immediately do? Look at verse 16. And it tells us he tries to defy God's curse by what? Settling in the land of Nod. That's the very opposite of being a vagrant and a wanderer. Okay, and incidentally, the word Nod means wandering. <laughs> okay, so he settled in the land of wandering. So very early on in Cain's life, we find characteristics of secular culture because from Cain comes secular society or secular culture. Here are some characteristics from what I've talked about so far. There are a culture that is in open rebellion towards God. Okay, Cain is rebelling against God. We see that in him trying to settle down. There are cultures that worship the true God their way. We see this all the time. And I've argued that if you're going to think you can worship God his way by not coming to church anymore because it's more convenient to stay at home, that is worshiping the true God your way. Therefore, that is unacceptable worship. Number three, they're an evil culture. Okay, Cain was evil. He's premeditated murder. They're a murderous culture. They're a lying culture. Again, Cain lied to God. And they're a defying culture. They're going to defy God. They refuse to submit to God. That's all just from what we talked about in Cain so far. Okay? But from Cain, those six characteristics do you see in secular society even today yes you do yes we do look at verse 17 now cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city enoch after the name of his son let's break this down now by this time the world population is very small correct my question to you is this who did cain marry well, I kind of gave you the answer, but obviously one of his sisters, right? Why would she marry Cain? What happened to Cain? He was marked. We don't know what that mark is, but it was clear he was marked by as a protection from God because the other family relatives would know what he did and they would seek to take his life. So he's marked, he's an outcast, and yet he is able to woo one of his sisters to marry him. What in the world was she thinking? Right? 
you have any options and didn't have high standards? Okay. Now, one thing I do know about wives, about women in general, is that they like to nest, right? They like to kind of settle down. That's within them. And yet she's marrying a man who cannot settle down. He's cursed to be a vagrant and a wanderer. So why marry a man who was destined to be a vagrant, wandering human on the earth? Well, apparently the stigma of being his brother's killer did not prevent one of his sisters from being willing to marry him to fulfill the command to, to populate the earth. And whatever the reason, they start a family and they have a son called Enoch. This reminds us of common grace. Okay? Because even though the line of Cain is cut off from the covenant blessings of God, they're still able to procreate. In other words, Cain could enjoy and experience the joy of marriage. The privilege of having children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And we'll see how the loins of Cain came some very remarkable people. And God does bless the secular culture from Cain and Cain himself and Cain's family. But it's only in a temporary way in regards to time. See, they were blessed in the, the material world or the physical world. They were not blessed in the spiritual or that which is eternal. Because consider this, eventually all of Cain's line was drowned in the flood. Drowned in the flood. And it was through righteous Seth and through Noah that we still have all this corruption still. So again, it speaks to our depraved nature. Now, perhaps encouraged by the birth of his son Cain, uh, Cain or his son Enoch, Cain continues to defy God and wants to lessen the effect or mitigate the effects of his curse. And he tries to build a city. City, David built a city and it was called the city of David. Okay? So he didn't get to build it. His son Enoch built it and therefore it was, that's why it was named after him. So Enoch completed the construction. So Cain could not lessen the effect of his curse. And what we also find in this text is the beginning of urbanization. Okay? You go to Adam, to Cain, to Enoch. And by the third generation, what are they doing? Are they living in caves anymore? Nope. They're building a society. And the next verse identifies four subsequent generations, the fourth, fifth, sixth, the seventh, and they're all in verse 18. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujalah, and Mahujalah became the father of Methushalah, Methushel, and Methushel became the father of Lamech. Now, one quick point. This doesn't mean that these were the only children born. All right? They were just the firstborn in the next sequence of generations. And over the long lifespans, you can be sure Cain and his wife had more children. Those children had children, and those children had children, and those children had children. Even Adam and Eve and Seth were having more children. That's how we're populating the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now, we will understand more about the society by simply looking at the names of the people. So we look at these names, the etymology, and we see Irad. 
And that means of the city. Of the city. And this probably means that Irad is a city dweller. Or he's a townsman. So now we have a town and a son who is a townsman. Well, how did he earn a living if he lived in the town? Well, he was most likely a businessman. Okay? And we see society begin to operate outside of agriculture, outside of just livestock. They weren't all cattle ranchers. Okay? We know Adam was a farmer because he was what? Tilling the ground. It wouldn't produce from as, as easy as it did, but he was a farmer. Cain was a farmer. What did Cain offer God? Produce, exactly. But by the time you get to Irad, the great-grandson of Adam, he's a city dweller. He's not a farmer. Okay? Now, Mahujel and Methushel, watch this, they both end in El. And El in the Hebrew means what? God. El Shaddai. Sounds familiar? El Elohim. Now, their names means this. God blots out and violence of God. And so as we see, there is no evidence that these two people, Mahushala and Mahushala, that they believed in God. The only evidence we have from their name is that tells us that they were under the judgment of God. God was blotting out. There was violence of God. And so now we begin to have a picture. You have a city with a city dweller and God blotting out and acting in violence against this city. And the clear implication is this, that sin is increasing. You see that? Society is already corrupt. And it'll reach its climax in Genesis chapter 6 when God looks at his creation and says this in verse 5 of chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. I can only imagine what it must have been like now, there were not any record of any laws that we know that were in existence. The law of given to Moses was thousands of years later, okay? And so I'm assuming that you know, might makes right in this culture. But the climax of the genealogy of Cain is the man Lamech. And Lamech means powerful or conqueror or strong man. And Lamech is like Cain. His great-grandfather goes all, all the way down. He's his distant relative. That he is evil, he is murderous, and he openly defies God. In fact, Jude 11 sums Lamech up very closely when, or concisely when he says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. That's talking about false prophets. Lamech went the way of Cain, as we'll find out. He was evil. He, he murdered people. He was violent. He was openly rebelling against God in terms of marriage. He married two wives. Okay? He is the prototypical Cainite, we'd say. And that means he is a definitive illustration 
of a declining society. And verse 19 begins his story. It says, Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other, Zillah. And so here we find, and this would be important to, to mark in your Bible, the illustration, the first recorded illustration of the corruption of marriage. God's original design was monogamy. That's not a hardwood, okay? One man, one woman for life. Genesis 2.24. Man was created monogamous, but it didn't take long before he became a polygamist. And it's illustrated by Lamech. It doesn't mean that Lamech was the only polygamist, but it indicates to us that he, that's where the line of Cain went. And whenever the Bible speaks of polygamy, <laughs> it brings conflict and suffering. Think of Abraham. And Hagar, think of David and all his wives, Solomon and all his wives. But the point here is it reveals the character of Lamech. And while the Ten Commandments came years later through Moses, there was still a clear understanding from God through Adam of one man and one woman for life. This is why it points out here that Lamech violated that to show you that this is a rebellious person following the steps of Cain. He's in the seventh generation of Cain, and he's leading the family into open rebellion against God. Now, why two wives? Well, Ada means pretty. Zillah means sweet voice. So he liked the way one looked, and he liked the way one sounded. <laughs> also consider why we have two wives. We're in a patriarchal society. It means the more wives you had, the more children you had, the more children you had, the more work you could get done, the more work you could get done, the more productive you could be, and the more productive you could be, the more wealth you would gain. And the more wealth you had, the more power you could wield. And if life was largely family business related back then, then the bigger the family, the bigger the potential. But really what is astounding is these two wives, Ada and Zillah, gave Lamech at least four children that we know of. Three boys and a girl. And now is where we really have to pay attention because the three boys take society to another level. Look at verse 20. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah... She also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. We begin with the sister of Tubal Cain. We don't know much about her except what the two consonants in the Hebrew word N and M, they're frequently used in words related to music. Means, name means one who makes sweet music. So perhaps she was a very gifted singer. But the sons are all connected to the same Hebrew stem, Yabel, whether it's Jabel, Jubal, or Tubal. Now you know what that means? This is probably important to, to understand this. To produce. These were very, very productive boys. To produce. The first one, Jabel, was the father, the text says, of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So we say Jabel would be the original cattle rancher. 
His expertise was in animal husbandry. By the way, he worked with livestock. He did not work with sheep. That's what Abel did. This includes all animals that would be domesticated and bred. And with the lifespan of humans, they would be experts, for example, in breeding, feeding, milking, skinning, the meat of the animals, the hides. Jabel was the founder of all of that. Okay? And these people dwelt in tents because livestock needed to graze. And since pre-flood earth, we believe, had no deserts, which is this lush environment, they simply followed the herd. That's why they lived in tents. Jubal was the father of all those who play the, mu- who play the lyre and pipe. He would be the inventor of music. And again, what a tremendous act of God in common grace. Can you imagine in the, our unbelieving world with no music? He invented tones, the arrangements of music and also instruments to play. You would say that Jubal would be called today a, a, a maestro or a musical savant. The other wife, Zillah, gave birth to Tubal Cain, who was probably named after Cain as a way to honor Cain. And it, again, gives you a picture of how corrupt society was. Who would want to name a child after someone who rejects God? Tubal Cain is a forger or hammerer of all implements of bronze and iron. He's the first metallurgist, I said. And that metallurgy, as I looked into this some more, is a, a skill of great science. It demands tremendous power. I mean, how do you develop the matter of making all kinds of things out of bronze and iron? How do you do that? Watch this. First of all, you have to get the new material, the raw material, right? to make things out of bronze and iron. It wasn't just laying around. How'd they do that? They'd have to mine for it. So everybody turn to Genesis chapter 28. Job chapter 28, thank you. Job chapter 28. I discovered this, I was really taken back. Now Job is the oldest book in the Bible, we believe. It was written during the time of the patriarchs, but it is post-flood, okay? So it's after the flood. The time of patriarchs would be the time of Abraham, for example, and Jacob, and so on. Now, and if the technology that we're about to discover existed in the time of the patriarchs, think what technology existed during the pre-flood age. Starting in verse 1, look at this. Genesis, Job 28. Surely there is a mine for silver in a place where they refine gold. So obviously, Job knows of mines that have been built. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is smelted from rock. So they are all ready. Yeah. Man puts an end to darkness. Into the farthest limit he searches out the rock in gloom in deep shadow. I mean, how does man find silver and gold and iron and copper? What does it mean that he puts an end to darkness? Well, very simply, it means he has to go deep down into the earth where it is dark. 
He has to go to the farthest limit to search it out and let the light in. He has to develop some way to literally drill into the core of the earth. And in doing so, they sink a shaft. Look at verse 4. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro far from men. Now, forgotten by the foot means a place that nobody has ever seen. In this shaft, they hang and swing like the dwarves of Middle Earth. You ever see Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit? And they're down there hanging in the bowels of the earth, binding away. And of course, this, of course, implies that they built some kind of elevator system so people could go down and swing on the shaft in the depths of the earth. That's pretty advanced. Look at verse 5. The earth, from it comes food, and underneath it, it is turned up as fire. Now the question is this. Did they develop an underground explosive system to what? To turn over the earth. You see that? It's turned up as what? Fire. Verse 6, it's rocks are the source of sapphires. Its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. Birds of prey have incredible vision. They can look down from high in the sky and see a small mouse. But it's something even a bird of prey or a falcon's eye can't see. Verse 8, the proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has a fierce lion passed over it. This is a place where neither proud beasts nor fierce lions have ever walked. And look, watch this, verse 9. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains of the base. Now, what's a flint? A flint is something used to start a fire, right? Somehow, and this is amazing, they knew how to overturn a mountain in the mining process by reducing it to rubble through powerful explosions. You see that? You see that? This is post-flood. What were they able to do, we think, in a more advanced society? Pre-flood. Verse 10. He hews out channels through the rocks, and his eyes see anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the lights. So they hewed out channels through the rock, possibly meaning they drilled and then filled those drill holes with explosives to create channels. They dammed up streams to bring to light what was hidden. Precious jewels such as what are hidden in the earth. Gold, diamonds, sapphires, all of this, okay? My point is this. They developed metallurgy using bronze and iron. This is a complex science that requires great power and wisdom. If you drive down from you know, where my son Mark is in Athens, Ohio, coming from, from the north of Ohio, you come down, southeastern and south, southern Ohio is the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. There are these hills, little mini mountains, you call them more like hills, and you go through down Route 33, and you'll see that there's these drill holes. And, and we know what they did. We, we still hear them doing it today. They drill these holes, they put dynamite in there, and they blow up. That's how they create the opening for the road, Route 33. Okay? So that when I read that, I thought of that immediately. And that's with our technology. Okay? 
But it takes, it requires, you know, being a metallurgist, great power, great wisdom. And these three boys were experts in their, their areas of animal husbandry, of music, and of metallurgy. And we know that they were very productive in their areas that they were ex- experts in. And they brought great advancements to society that everybody got to share and, and enjoy. Now, what happens, though, to secular society? This is where you turn in your Bible to the final judgment of secular society in Revelation 18. So you've been in Genesis. You've been in the middle of the Bible in Job. Now go all the way down to the end in Revelation 18. This is what happens to secular society. Starting in verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Babylon would be a a symbol of secular society. But what we see here is a violent throwing down resulting in a final quick destruction that is so complete that Babylon, the symbol of secular society, is never to be found again. Verse 22, and the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer, and no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer, and the sound of a mill will not be heard of you in you any longer. So no more entertainment. That's the end of secular music. No more industry, meaning the end of all the production of goods, Food, clothing, metals that have come from where? Secular society. It's over. Look at verse 23. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. In other words, what that basically means is the normal things of life, such as marrying, for example, it will stop. Continue. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. The judgment of God was justified because the leaders were corrupt and they were materialistic. The great men of earth, they were the wealthy ones, they were the merchants. And as the leader goes, so goes the culture. And the world was deceived by their corruption. Verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Not only had corrupt leaders deceived people, but the godless, evil, secular society continued in the way of Cain and was murderous against the saints. Right to the end, exactly. In the end, what does the secular society give you? Corrupt leadership, worldwide sorcery, and deception. In the massacre of the saints, And God says, I've had enough. I've seen enough. Let my judgment begin. And he wiped out secular society once. And when did he do that the first time? In the flood. And this time he wipes them out forever. 
In other words, there's going to be, come a time when all cities and all agricultural, all, or, all agriculture, all urbanization, all business, all craft, all music, all entertainment, it all ends. And then there will be a time of divine purification when the Lord cleanses the earth. And how does he do that? Through a fire, and then he comes what? A new heaven and a new earth. And he establishes his kingdom. And then all the enterprises will be sacred. As God establishes forever a sacred society. We didn't have time this morning. The sacred society is what we'll talk about next. That comes through Seth. Okay? Now I've given you six characteristics of secular society. I want to add a seventh here. I think I put it up here for you. Secular society brought us this, a culture that developed urbanization, agriculture, arts, metallurgy that was shared by all. It's common grace. Okay? But what does this, why are we talking about the first society? What does this have to do with us? Well, secular culture is what it has always been. Nothing more than a common grace enjoyed by all, but also a corrupting factor in culture. If we understand this, for believers, we must renew our dedication to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's a scheme, and the word pattern here means scheme or strategy. Okay? The secular society seeks to conform you to its ways. And we all know about that. We have seen the effects of secular society and its end result. Judgment in the form of a worldwide flood and its ultimate end in Revelation chapter 18. And so my word to you this morning is to resist the pull of secular society to bend you to its ways. So do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You know where it began, you know where it ends, and that is not you. If you're a believer, you are not of the secular society. You are of the sacred society. So live that way. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, as we close with a song, as we do almost every Sunday, again, you are seeking people who will worship you. People who will offer you acceptable worship. People who will worship you in spirit and in truth. People who are of a sacred culture, a sacred society. Of the line that makes its way through our parents and relatives, going all the way through Jesus Christ and all the way through Seth back to Adam, the original believer. And so may we offer you in this last song, acceptable worship. Amen. Please stand with me. Let's close with a song.